This is your brain. This is your brain while listening to Rad Scientist. <laughs> Tune in to the podcast about the scientists of San Diego. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Psychologically, what eventually worked for us as adults is to deny denial and just embrace and say and just say yes. Uh, I embrace my Mexicanness. I embrace my Americanness, and. Uh, there are parallel things that we live with that can at some points be uh, in conflict with, but uh, not really that much in our experience because uh, we cross the border uh, weekly. And when, I'm, when we cross the border, it's sort of like taking one brain and putting another brain. You think differently. You're a different person. And, and it's a normal process in, in the region. Welcome to My First Day. I'm Andrew Bracken. Just like thousands of others living along the San Diego-Tijuana border, Artists Tomex and Einar De La Torre live in two worlds, where crossing the border is part of their normal life. But their first real move across the border began in Guadalajara, Mexico, in early summer 1972. Having just finished the school year at their all-boys Catholic school, the brothers thought they were going on a family vacation to Mazatlan. The trip, though, would actually be for more than just a couple weeks, and their final destination would be much further north. Here is Tomex and Einar De La Torre telling the story of... My first day. My first day. We left Guadalajara because of a family breakup. Uh, so basically, my mother took all of us kids, uh, and we're six kids, uh, and I, we went away by bus without telling my, my dad. So it was uh, a cutoff of sorts. So in a sense, you didn't really keep uh, the ties that kids would keep, like uh, communications. We were just sent up, and all of a sudden, we're in a new environment. When we left Guadalajara, uh, my mother didn't tell us, the youngest ones, what was going on. So as far as we knew, we were going on a holiday to Mazatlan. But uh, we kept going, and eventually in the, on the bus ride, uh, she told us. Uh, as you can understand, back then, the bus ride was probably three days. It was a long time in the bus to process what was going on. But before you know it, you were in, in, uh, in California. Yeah, it was a, quite a trip of transformation there. Hamex's younger brother, Einar, was just nine when they left on the bus. So when my mom left my dad, um, they just told me we were going on vacation. So um, we got into a bus um, to Mazatlan, and I didn't know that we were just, we were actually being uprooted and leaving our lives. Uh, later on, I was told as we progressed up, 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 uh, up uh, the Pacific. I remember uh, getting on the bus, I believe it was Nogales, and the... 125 degree heat uh, sort of greeting us when we got out of the bus and wondering what this thing was about. But I remember that, that the heat there as we took a bus to probably come over here on the 8 you know, freeway and kind of see where, what, what, what's this new thing that we're doing. Because it wasn't a vacation. I think that was a, an interesting um, thing to process for us, that this wasn't a vacation, that that little suitcase was all you had. What you threw in that suitcase was what you had to bring. And that is, I think, ties to so many um, migrant experiences that you just had with, you know, the old onions in your pockets type of thing. Um, and those were the onions in our pockets, whatever we had at that moment. And uh, it's, it's interesting because it's both exciting and, and tremendously vulnerable. 
After they arrived, the family went to stay with their grandmother for the summer in Rancho Penasquitos, near San Diego. You know, I remember going to going to the pool, and it was just all at that point. Uh, uh, everything was an adventure because, you know, we had to walk down to the Seven Eleven, and that, there was not much to Rancho Penasquitos at that time. It really was a bunch of hillsides with a very tiny community sort of sort of uh, secluded in there. We were fascinated by by Slurpees. You know, what the hell is that? It's like this. It's like it's so. It's wonderful, and of course, as a kid, anything that has sugar is good. So, you're like brain freeze. Cool. <laughs> so I think we were sort of wide-eyed um, and you know absorbing this you know Mountain Dew kind of experience that America was for us. It was sort of intense and caffeinated and and sugar and bubbles and all of that. And I think that. Uh, you know, as we settled in, um, the first impression is sort of, uh, it was very much an overload, I think. When we were kids in, uh, in Guadalajara in the 60s, uh, we had this mythical idea of what the United States represented and was, because uh, at that time, you just watch TV and you, th you think that is the land of the future uh, in actuality. So you think that when you go up there, you're going to, go out and see all these wondrous things. And in some ways and in some respects, it's true, but of course, it's, you know, at the real life level, it's not that different either. So, but that's how you, you know, how you develop your mythology as a kid. You, you think about those things, you know, we're watching the Jetsons on TV in, this, in Mexico in the 60s, and you think about a future and you wonder how similar can it can be to that. I remember when we came up here, when we watched the Flintstones or the Jetsons um, in English, we thought to ourselves, hey, look, they, they can speak English too. Because for us, the, their native language was Spanish. Um, so it's interesting how it depends on, on, on your point of view. I was going to say that we went from the Flintstones to the Jetsons. <laughs> <laughs> so when we were in Rancho Peñasquitos, we visited our cousins who were living here in, um, in San Diego, and they would play Chichen Chong records. And, and for us, as we're learning English, to hear the... Um, the, the vernacular street, you know, uh, was very interesting because they would be laughing at stuff and we try to figure out why they're laughing. And as we started to understand and learn more English, we started to understand what was funny about it. And of course, we grew up with all, all that's really ingrained in our mind, not just because it was cutting edge comedy at the time, uh, not just that, but also because for us, it was a way to learn vernacular uh, street at the time. Dave's not here. <laughs> So good. I still laugh at that stuff, to tell you the truth. Once summer ended, Einer, Homex, and the rest of their family settled in Dana Point, a classic Southern California beach town in Orange County, where they started school and began to adjust to their new surroundings. And I think all the prerogatives of dealing with a new life and a new environment so much take over uh, and overwhelm you, because uh, starting with the language, but uh, everything else, all of a sudden, you just want to, like any kid, f fit in. It's easy to understand how you turn the page, so to speak, because you don't have any, any, you know, you have to deal with what's on the next page. You can't really go back that much. There's no time. It's interesting how, as, as immigrants, we go through these phases of uh, this deep longing and this, uh, while you're trying to get adjusted, and before you know it, uh, you're just living like anybody else, because... Uh, <laughs> that's, what you, that's what we all need to do, you know, uh, keep going. When you're dropped into a class 
um, and don't speak English. It's um, it's really amazing how quickly kids can learn. Because <laughs> if you want to have friends, um, you know, you have to speak to them in their language. So I think we both we were immersed and we, we had to assimilate to sink or swim. So we we assimilated uh, us and without without even thinking about it, we were now we were part of them the culture in the United States. One of the aspects of the whole transformation that also informs our artwork is that when we're kids in Guadalajara, we would go to church. But the old churches in Guadalajara carry this heavy mystery. And they're so overly decorated. There's corpses in aquariums and bloody saints. A lot of gilding. But when we first moved up to Dana Point, the family continued to go to Catholic churches in Dana Point probably about three times because the churches in Dana Point were all modern. So all of a sudden you were supposed to be in a church and, and there's no no mystery. There's even a rock band. So it didn't take long for us, for us to go, well, this, this isn't the same. The God, the God we knew couldn't possibly live there. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. It's almost like a Catholic church designed by Ikea. <laughs> At some point we visited a, a Protestant church through my grandmother. You remember that? Mm -hmm. But even back then, I think we were wondering, wow, this church... It's so austere, man. The, the crucifix doesn't even have a corpse. <laughs> it's just a Where's the fun in that? Yeah. So Blend. boring. What is interesting for us is that uh, being in Dana Point, uh, we weren't really exposed to a Mexican-American Chicano experience at all. We were fully immersed. And uh, like I said, most of the time, we were just another kid in town. And you didn't really think that much about being Mexican, except once in a while I was reminded about my accent. But... But for us, there was a division. So we were Mexican, yes, and we were becoming American, yes. And so it was um, really interesting when we went to university and got exposed to you know a whole myriad of other races that, that uh, compiled the United States, um, which was wonderful for us. And we also got exposed to Chicano culture, which we were very much not part of. So this whole idea of being Mexican-American was actually um, not our experience. Our experience were Mexican, or Americans, and we would separate, and it was like two different sides of the brain. We would be, we could be Mexican and, and, and uh, you know, native language and all that, and and um, and culturally fully, or we could be fully American because we'd become that. And for us to see um, the culture that's a mixture of the two was was very eye opening. For us, you know, it was English or Spanish, and Spanglish was frowned upon very much. Uh, so. Uh, for us to start playing with that as, as we became artists was a lot of fun to sort of dig deep and see that that was also part of our, our experience was that, that this and that also included the mixture of the two. This idea of mixtures and using different combinations can be found not only in their artwork, but also in how they work together collaboratively, which can be traced to their childhood. I think as kids, and I think you, you touched into the fact that uh, when a family immigrates or goes through some sort of trauma, uh, people huddle together. And I think as kids, we, you know, you know the, the game Squisit Corpse. When you draw a hat and then you fold it over and the next person draws the head. Uh, that, was a, that was one of the common pastimes that we had as kids. And that was an indirect collaboration back then. And uh, the other thing is uh, we always had modeling clay around. You know, that was the only ubiquitous toy that we had as kids was modeling clay throughout. And so it's, 
Modern Clay was always like an ongoing collaboration with your brothers, in, in a sense. You, you could make anything with it. After finishing high school in Dana Point, both Hamex and Einer moved to Long Beach, where they studied and worked for several years, focusing on sculpture and glass blowing. Looking for a larger space to call their own, they began looking for land in Mexico, eventually buying a property in the Guadalupe Valley near Ensenada and Baja in the mid-80s. They later added a house in San Diego to go along with it. Aside from having their own space to create their work, they soon found another meaning in what the land gave to them. For us, it was a homestead, if you will. It was a way to look at going back. It's funny how um, when you're from a place, you're born somewhere, you always feel like you're from there, no matter what, no matter how much we've assimilated. So for us, we needed to go back to Mexico feeling we're somos mexicanos, you know? The initial motivation for going to Baja was to build a glass studio. That was our initial uh, rough idea. But then it eventually the whole project became this thing about us uh, having, like I said, a homestead and going back to, to Mexico. So it became, other meanings came into it. Well, I think the advantages for us in being on both sides of the border are that you can pick and choose. So we'll bring some things from Trader Joe's, um, if you will. And some things we buy in Mexico and we, we bring up whatever we can cross the border with. But I think picking and choose what you want out of each place is essential because then you're getting what you want out of where you are and that we um, were able to um, feed off of both both sides. So I think the border has, has fed us very much because of our dual identity um, is being expressed really by crossing the border all the time and, uh, and watching that dynamic happen in, in both directions. So for us, it's a political football. It always has been a political football that gets punted uh, here and there. The reality for people that are crossing it is it's just the daily trudge of how long you're going to spend there and trying to avoid traffic hours. And, you know, of course, that's for the people who, who can pass because not everybody can cross the border. And that's another dynamic. I think that uh, psychologically what eventually worked for us as adults is to deny denial and just embrace and say, and just say yes, uh, I embrace my Mexicanness, I embrace my Americanness, and... Uh, there are parallel things that we live with that can at some points be uh, in conflict with, but uh, not really that much in our experience because uh, we cross the border uh, weekly. And when, I'm, when we cross the border, it's sort of like taking one brain and putting another brain. You think differently. You're a different person when you speak a different language. And I think that is pretty obvious to most people that are uh, bicultural. And, and it's a normal process in, in the region. And I think uh, we have embraced that duality and uh, it, 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 uh, it informs very well the additive way in which we work as, as collaborators, as, uh, as artists that work in different mediums. You could call our work Baroque. We, we will add these layers. We want these layers to harmoniously work together, you know, as best as possible. So we were dealt a set of cards in life uh, because of the family uh, experience and moving and, and the, the diaspora of it. We at some point chose to uh, make that part of our um, part of our artwork, but also that means part of your life in a way that you are this and that. It's no not so much that are you um, you know this or that you are this and that. For us, we chose to make it a, uh, an additive 
um, experience. Uh, the, the layering became another layer. And when we collaborate, of course, it's another layer still because then we're working together to make uh, one piece of artwork. So I think that we learned that layers um, uh, were enriching to us and we, um, in many ways, and we're, it's a lot better to not make the decision of what you are uh, because being self-defined very often is self-limiting. And we like the options of, of, of opening that dialogue and, and, and seeing the possibilities of what else you can become. Thanks a lot for listening. If you haven't had the chance yet, you can always subscribe and hear more on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at kpbs.org slash myfirstday. You can also finally find us and like us, if you want, on Facebook at My First Day Stories. We'll be posting some outtakes and some other content on there. Email works too, myfirstdaystories at gmail.com. I'm Andrew Bracken. My First Day was produced by me with music by Chris Curtis. Dim Dim, and Allison Abels. Thanks also to Melissa Diaz. Support for this program comes from the KPBS Explore Local Content Fund, supporting new ideas and programs for San Diego. For KPBS, Melanie Drogseth is Programming Coordinator, Nate John is Innovation Specialist, Jill Linder is Programming Manager, and John Decker is Director of Programming. Thanks again. See you next time. San Diego is one of the largest scientific research hubs in the country. So who are the scientists in search of discovery? Glad you asked. I'm Margot Wall, the host of Rad Scientist, a new KPBS podcast coming to you this fall.